0: Well, you know, when you're, uh, when you're having a conversation with someone about whatever, and uh, you can be engaged in a conversation to one degree or another, right, depending on what you're talking about, but in the course of that conversation, when that other person brings up something, a subject that you happen to be intensely interested in, I mean, maybe it's something as simple as a particular car, or a particular sport or a a location, maybe a honeymoon spot or a vacation spot you've been to. Maybe it's a a movie or a series of movies or a a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a particular piece of music or some famous person. You know, all that it takes is to hear the word or name that describes that object or that thing or that activity, place or person, and all of a sudden something shifts in that conversation inside of you. Because you're now engaged in that conversation in a different way than you were to begin with. Sometimes you can feel your, your pulse even uh, quicken a little. Your, your ears maybe perk up and your, your heart and your mind engages in that conversation in a deeper way. Because you're heavily invested emotionally or, or physically or financially or whatever it is. Maybe a combination of those things in that place or that person or that thing. Now... Imagine you're having that same conversation and someone says the word church. They bring up the subject of church. I wonder what you think about in that moment and does it have the same effect as some of those other things that you're intensely interested in or maybe, maybe not at all, right? Does the word church make you think of a program or a ministry that you're involved in? Maybe the word church makes you think of a particular place that you go to on Sundays or a religious denomination even or, or maybe something that just wants your money or your free labor or your allegiance, right? Does the word church make you think of an activity or a building or a particular speaker or style of music? Because listen, the truth is the church is none of those things. It may involve some of those things, but the church is us. All of the men and women who belong to Christ, we are the church. You see, the church is actually supposed to be something that we cannot live without. Something we're so passionate about that it invades every conversation and every gathering with friends. The church should be something we love so much that we give our lives and all that we have to it freely and joyfully and generously, something so vitally important to us that we would even die for it. That's how we're supposed to feel about the church, which means that is how we're supposed to feel about each other because we are the church. And certainly, if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, you've probably heard all of that in one way or another. You probably know all of that. However, what I'm not quite as certain about is whether or not we truly understand the power, the power that we wield as the church when we're unified in that way, when we're so committed to Christ and to each other, that we would literally die for one another if need be. The power and authority that comes with that kind of unity among us, honestly, it's staggering. And I'll just tell you, when you are invested in the church in that way and your brothers and sisters to that degree, then when the subject of church comes up in conversation, well, well, now you have my full attention. More importantly... When you have a group of believers who are that intensely committed to one another, then you belong to something that, according to Jesus, is unstoppable, as we'll see uh, as we continue our sermon series today, working our way through the book of Judges, where Gideon had been called by God to do something truly extraordinary. To lead God's people into battle against their enemies who had decimated the Israelites' land and livelihood for seven straight years. And at this point in the story, the Midianites were 135,000 battle hardened soldiers strong, while Gideon had only 32,000 untested and under resourced fighters. The odds were nearly ridiculous especially when you factor in the experience of the Midianites in battle and the inexperience of the Israelites, the the resources and weapons of the Midianites and the lack of both for the Israelites. And so the prospect of overcoming this massive enemy army of 135,000 confident soldiers with nothing more than 32,000 dreadfully afraid inexperienced, ill-equipped Israelites had overwhelmed Gideon emotionally and spiritually. In fact, he was nearly paralyzed by fear and almost completely devoid of faith in the period leading up to the battle. But then God decided to do something definitive. He decided to raise the bar for Gideon even farther. And so through a couple of Uh, unusual tests, which we saw last week, God trims Israel's fighting force from 32,000 down to 300. Now, if the point of sending Gideon into battle was to defeat this massive army, then why would you do that? Why would you reduce Gideon's army to 300 men? Well, it's because God knew who Gideon needed with him and who he didn't need with him. You see, Gideon did not need 22,000 men who were too afraid to fight. So after the first test, God sends 22,000 of them who were shaking in their sandals home. God also knew that Gideon didn't need another 9,700 men who didn't measure up to God's requirements. They didn't make the muster, whatever it was. So God sent another 9,700 of them home. And so of the 32,000 men who are with Gideon to begin with, God sends 31,700 of them home. Why in the world would you do that? Because God knew That what Gideon needed more than anything were men who would stand with him and fight through the most difficult time of his life, of all of their lives, actually, together, unified, united by a common cause, risking their very lives for one another if need be. That is what Gideon needed, however large or small of a number of people it actually ended up being, which in the end happened to be 300 men. But you see, that was all that Gideon needed because no matter what, those 300 men, they were with him. And so far better to have 300 brothers who would stand together no matter what came their way than more than 30,000 who would turn and run away at the first sign of trouble. Listen, what Gideon needed then is exactly what each one of us needs today. You see, when you're facing overwhelming obstacles in your life, You don't need an endless sea of people in your life who claim to be Christians but live without conviction, who claim to love the church but only when it suits them, who claim to have your back until you run into trouble. No, when you're back is against the wall and all hell has come against you. What you need are men and women who understand the cost of following Christ, who understand the commitment of being the church and who understand the risk of fighting with you and in the very face of that risk, they willingly choose to stay through all of it and fight by your side, come what may. You see, when someone brings up the word church, In conversation, what should come to your mind are the brothers and sisters in this family who are ready to die for you, if necessary. That's what it means to be a part of the church. And when you have a group of believers like that, people who are committed to Christ and to one another, then I'm telling you, we are unstoppable. And here's why it matters. Because whatever it is that God has called you to in this life, whatever it is that he created you for, you cannot get there in this lifetime alone. You can't. You cannot accomplish in this life what God has created and called you to accomplish on your own. You cannot, which is why he instituted the church, which is why he gave his great commission to the church, which is why he gave his Holy Spirit to the church, which is why his holy word was written to the church. Because just as Gideon was never meant to go into battle alone, neither are we. God knew that for Gideon to spread the kingdom of heaven on earth, he would need to be surrounded by others who were with him to the very end. And that is just as true for us today. So he created the church, this unstoppable army of believers who would face the attacks of our enemy together. Who would fight our greatest battles in life. Together, who would take ground for the kingdom of heaven. Together, this is the lesson that Gideon had to learn. And so God reduced his army from 32,000 to 300 to show him that with God and a family of true believers, anything is possible because together they were unstoppable. I'm telling you, there's so much we can learn here. From Gideon and his 300 men and we dare not miss it because it could not be any more relevant for us today. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week at Judges chapter 7 and we'll begin by reading verse 19 to the end of the chapter. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came out to the outskirts of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army." The army fled as far as Bethshadah toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. The men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Bethbera and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbera, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeab. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeab they killed at the winepress of Zeab. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeab to Gideon across the Jordan." So Gideon splits the 300 men up into three companies and they spread out around the enemy camp with nothing but trumpets, jars, and torches. Keep in mind, they've been depleted by the Midianites ravaging their land and their homes for seven years. They're without a weapon. So at the beginning of the middle watch of the night, which is actually a significant detail from a a tactical military standpoint, okay, uh, we know from the second century B.C. Jewish Book of Jubilees in chapter 49 that at this point in ancient Near Eastern practice there were three watches of the night. Later on in the history of the Israelites probably under the influence of Roman culture they adopted a a division of four watches. But at this point in our story there were only three uh, with the middle watch beginning at 10 p.m. The reason that is significant is because of the state of the enemy soldiers at the beginning of a watch in the middle of the night okay? Those who were just ending their watch were tired. They were ready to go to sleep. Those who were beginning their watch have just been woken up out of a dead sleep, and everyone else in the camp is already fast asleep. So no one is sharp at this moment. And so if you're going to launch an assault against 135,000 soldiers with just 300 men, this would be the optimum time to do it. And so imagine either being asleep or nearly so, and all of a sudden out of the pitch blackness of night comes a deafening blast of 300 trumpets and then the violent crashing sound of 300 jars being shattered and then the sudden appearance of hundreds of torches all around the perimeter of the camp and then a thunderous war cry all at one time. The shock and timing of all of that together throws the army into an absolute Panic! And remember, uh, earlier in the chapter, it says their camels were too many to be counted. When this overwhelming commotion starts, those camels would have come unhinged as well, probably creating a stampede, just adding to the confusion, which makes sense then that the enemy fighters would have been swinging their swords at just about everything moving in the shadows of the night, which of course turned out to be mostly their fellow Midianites. The result is breathtaking. A huge number of enemy fighters are killed by their fellow soldiers, the majority of them as we'll see, while the rest retreat from their camp. And so now, not only do the Israelites have the enemy on the run, but they have thousands of swords and weapons at their disposal from those lying dead at the camp. Now you know that for those 300 men to walk up to that enemy camp in the dead of night with nothing more than clay jars Torches and trumpets took a serious amount of commitment and resolve to each other. I I guarantee you, those men were not only prepared to fight together that night, but they were prepared to die together if need be, unlike the tens of thousands who had just been sent home. But you see, that's all that Gideon needed, because when the people of God are united in one spirit, with one mind, fixated on the cause of Christ and driven by a common love for Christ and for each other then the enemy cannot stop you when Jesus asked his disciples who do you say that I am Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus answered him blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who's in heaven and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 15 through 18. This conversation between Jesus and his disciples took place at the base of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi, which we know from ancient Jewish and Greek literature, including biblical literature, was considered in ancient Near Eastern culture to be the gateway to the underworld. It was actually a sacred place to the worshipers of Baal. We've unearthed through archaeology over 20 pagan temples there. In fact, in Judges 3.3, 3, it is referred to as Mount Baal Hermon. And before it was conquered by Israel, it was an Amorite stronghold ruled by the two kings Og and Sion, both descendants of the giant clans known as the Anakim and the Rephaim, which you'll remember if you were here when we worked through the book of Joshua together. We also have ancient Ugaritic a Canaanite text that described this place as home to the pagan god Moloch, who's associated with child sacrifice in 1 Kings 11:7 and Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. We have ancient Babylonian texts that describe an underworld cult of the dead with lists of deified ancient warrior kings and pagan gods who they believed to reside at this very same place. Likewise, in ancient Jewish theology from the Second Temple period and extra-biblical writings like the Book of First Enoch, we have descriptions of these giants, or watchers as they're called, descending down to Mount Hermon to this very spot before carrying out their evil deeds described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I could go on and on about the pagan history, the pagan roots of this place where Jesus is standing. The point is everyone knew what this place represented, the very gates of hell itself, and that is precisely where Jesus stood when he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you translate the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it uh, in the, the literal rendering from that phrase from the ancient Greek says, the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. In other words, Jesus was telling them there is no evil in this world or in hell below, not even the worst, uh, the worst and most powerful evil of this place where we're standing right now. None of it will be able to withstand my church. You see, this wasn't wishful thinking. You understand, this wasn't wishful thinking by Jesus. This was prophecy. He wasn't hoping that just maybe if we pray hard enough and hold on long enough that we would be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy in our lives. No, Jesus said, my church will be built on the proclamation of the gospel that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And when we, his people, are unified in one spirit, standing on the foundation of the truth of that gospel, there is nothing that the enemy can do to stop us. He can attack us all day long, but he cannot stop us. He can lie to you. He can tempt you. He can intimidate you. He can taunt you. But the one thing he cannot do is stop you from doing what God has called you to do. So don't let him. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. This relationship is beyond repair. It's too late for that dream to be fulfilled in my life. It's too big, this vision that God gave me for my future. It's too hard, this calling on my life. I'm telling you, I've heard it all. I'm not good enough, strong enough, smart enough, wealthy enough, qualified enough, righteous enough. All the lies the enemy tries to convince us of, we entertain them between our ears until those lies seep into our hearts and then we believe them to be true. This is one of the reasons we need each other because God never intended for us to fight these battles alone, not even the ones between our ears. Listen, you don't need a multitude of people to tell you what they think. You just need a few people who love you enough to tell you the truth that you are a child of God, according to Romans 8.16, that you're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves you, according to Romans 8.37, and that you don't have to be overcome by evil. Instead, you can absolutely overcome evil with good, Romans 12.21. That's just a little sampling of the truth about you. We went through a much longer list last week. But listen, brother... Sister in Christ, this is how we fight for each other. When our brothers and sisters, our fellow family members in the church are in trouble, we don't back away to say a silent prayer and then wait to see what happens. You know, the obligatory, well, hey man, I'm praying for you. Let me know how it goes. And then we wait to find out later how it all worked out. No, that is the same as running home like those 30,000 plus Israelites who were too afraid to fight. So they ran away before the battle even started. They told Gideon initially that they were with him, but God knew they had no intention of staying in the fight. I could almost hear them as they're walking home with their stuff. Hey man, we'll be praying for you guys. Let us know how it works out. No, fighting for each other means rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty and staying in that fight no matter how ugly or messy or risky it gets. It means getting in people's business when their lives are falling apart. It means speaking the truth in love even when it hurts. It means refusing to allow even one member of this family of God to fight their battles alone or to fall away from God without the rest of us doing everything in our power to keep them in the truth. Yet we say things like, well, I'm just a private person. I don't, I don't want anyone else in my business. I can handle it on my own. But when we decline prayer from others, when we refuse to listen to wise counsel, when we shut the church out of our personal lives, we're exposing ourselves to the enemy in a way that he otherwise would never have access to us. Not when we're being covered spiritually by the church. Remember, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against what? The church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's all of us together. But when you're openly willing to come out from underneath the protection and power and authority that Jesus has given to his church, you expose yourself to the enemy in ways that he otherwise could never touch you. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Revelation 3.11. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the word seize, lambano, in the Greek, it's not referring to this forceful seizure of something. It's not referring to something being ripped out of your hands as we think of it in the English. No, it's more in line with the idea of allowing someone to have what should be yours. Now keep in mind, this is a letter to the church, you see. The enemy cannot stop the church. But we can stop ourselves when we walk away from what God has given us, just like those 30,000 Israelites who walked away from the victory that could have been theirs. They were still God's people. They still belonged to him, but they allowed others to have the reward that could have been theirs had they held fast to what God had given them, namely the family of God. James, the brother of Jesus, said, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5 19 and 20. You see, this is the church being the church. This is us fighting for each other, no matter what it takes. This is the lesson that Gideon was fast learning. Let's keep reading. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? They accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abazir? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb." What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. You see what's happening here. It's precisely what we just talked about. At the end of chapter 7, once the enemy's on the run, Gideon calls out the men of Ephraim to join the fight. Those are the same men who just went home before the fight because they were too afraid to join the fight. And now they're upset because the glory of routing the enemy that should have been theirs, they gave away to these 300 who stayed. And like any good leader full of grace and compassion and probably a healthy dose of wisdom, Gideon softens their guilt and embarrassment by reminding them of what they do have. Let's keep reading, verses 4 through 17. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over there, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing so he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and, Zal- and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. From there he went up to Penuel, He spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. He said to them, the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Gideon went up by way of the tent dwellers east of Noba, and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herus, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. He wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And He broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Clearly, this is a different Gideon than the one we find in the first half of the story. This man who once had so little courage, they named their encampment after the trembling of he and his men. A man of so little faith that he repeatedly tested God over and over again to see if God would honor his own word. A man who would inspire so little confidence in his own men that the vast majority of them left before the battle even began. But now, Now Gideon is charging through the landscape on a mission to expand the kingdom of God and it appears that nothing can stop him. In fact, even when the people, the leaders of these two Israelite cities, Succoth and Penuel, when they refuse to feed Gideon's men who are completely exhausted and depleted from pursuing the enemy because of course Gideon and his men prepared themselves for a surprise attack, not a lengthy pursuit of an ongoing otherwise defeated enemy. And so the men are worn out, they're starving, and yet their own people, these were Israelites, who refused to feed them. Why? Because they're still afraid of the enemy who Gideon has yet to completely destroy. And so Gideon, instead of giving up when these fellow Israelites refused to support him, Gideon not only keeps fighting, but he promises the leaders of these cities that he will be back to exact his revenge after he's finished with their primary military objective. Then he leaves and he pursues the enemy all the way to Karkor. That was uh, well east of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan Uh, It's in the Transjordanian territory, far from the Israelites' territory. And the enemy then feels safe there, having no idea that Gideon, with this small band of men, would continue pursuing them as long as it took to finish them off. And, of course, that's exactly what Gideon does. Then Gideon makes good on his promise to the leaders of Succoth and Penuel. He returns to those cities, killing the leaders and tearing down the defensive tower. It was a tower they had built in Penuel, where the people could retreat to in case of an emergency. And so he tears it down, all of which was probably nothing more than a revenge-driven, actually a gross overreaction by Gideon. But nonetheless, talk about a turnaround. This once frightened, faithless Gideon who seemed unwilling to get started is now unstoppable, unwilling to quit no matter what comes his way because he knows God has called him and he knows his own men are with him. You see, Gideon is learning that when you pursue the call of God on your life with the family of God who are in your life, then other people cannot stop you. And again, it It may well have been a tragic act of revenge, possibly even the signaling of the darker side of Gideon coming to light when he killed these Israelites for not supporting him earlier. There's much debate about that among scholars, but the point remains. Gideon could have easily stopped when the people of Succoth and Penuel refused to help him. And why did they refuse to help him again? It's because the enemy hadn't yet been completely defeated, and so in fear of retribution from the Midianites... Maybe even in wanting Gideon to call off the pursuit for his own good, they refuse to support his mission. Now look, as you pursue the call of God on your life, there will absolutely be people in your life, sometimes your own people, family, friends, those who genuinely care about you, who will at times give you bad advice. Not because they mean you harm or want you to fail, but because they're not comfortable with the risk that you're about to take. And so they want you to play it safe because that's what they would do. And so they protect, or excuse me, they project their own fears onto you. Just to be clear, by the way, uh, I'm not talking about someone whose authority you are under directly, like a parent or a spiritual authority in your life, okay? So teenagers, if you're in here, young people... Uh, when your mother or father tells you to do or not to do something, that is God's will for your life in that moment uh, unless it is a direct, uh, indirect violation of God's command in his word, okay? So what I'm talking about here are those times in your life when you're pursuing God's calling on your life and a friend or relative or some other concerned party who is not in direct spiritual authority over you, that person counsels you to stop doing what you're doing, or not to go any further in pursuit of whatever it is you've been called to. Okay, it's always good to ask yourself in those situations, is whatever this person is telling me right now to do or not to do, is that what's best for me, or is that what's best for God's kingdom? And of course, in the long run, we know that pursuing God's kingdom purposes ultimately is what's best for you personally as well. However, In the moment, pursuing God's call for your life can often involve a lot of risk, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of personal cost. And what you will most often find with those naysayers, people who advise you against the pursuit of that calling, is they don't want to see you take those risks or make those sacrifices or have to pay those personal costs because they care about you. And so they will actually give you bad advice thinking they're saving you from yourself when actually they're simply standing in the way of what God has called you to do. You see, I don't think the people of Succoth and Penuel hated Gideon or his 300 men. In fact, they had far more reason to care about them. They were fellow Israelites being oppressed by the Midianites, but they had also been under the heavy hand of the Midianites for seven long years. And now Gideon, with 300 men, a pittance of an army, is demanding that they feed him and those 300 men so they can continue their pursuit of many thousands of men far from home. You see, I think the leaders of these Israelite cities probably knew or thought they knew what was best for Gideon and for his men and for themselves. But they were wrong because Gideon was pursuing the call of God on his life. And at that point, he could not be stopped. And listen, obviously, I'm not suggesting that you punish the people who love you but who do not support you in your pursuit of the call of God on your life. But look, don't let that stop you either. Because there will be times in your life when God will call you together with others in the body of Christ to do some things that other people who love you aren't really comfortable with. And in their concern for you, they will give you bad advice. They might even try to stop you or refuse to support you. But listen, other people cannot stop you when together with his people, you pursue his kingdom. Let's finish the story for today. Verses 18 through 21. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, His firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zebah and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Gideon arose and killed Zebah and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So at the end of this great battle, Gideon is left with the two kings of Midian where he has to face the reality that despite a great and overwhelming victory, these kings have killed his brothers. You want to talk about the cost, of pursuing the call of God on your life. For Gideon, the cost could not have been higher, and unlike the revenge killings of his fellow Israelites, probably at Succoth and definitely at Penuel, in this case, Gideon had justification to kill these two kings under the law in Numbers 35, where blood vengeance dictated capital punishment by the next of kin. And there was no shame in that culture, by the way, for these kings to die at the hands of a warrior like Gideon. And so these two kings actually show great courage and respect in the face of certain death when Gideon asks him about their brothers, about his brothers. And, uh, but then Gideon does something unexpected. He honors his young son by offering him the opportunity of killing these most important prisoners of war, which was considered a great honor at the time in Near Eastern culture, but not for the two kings. It would have been a great humiliation to them and a horrible way to die because the boy was obviously very young, which meant killing these two kings would have been a brutally slow and painful way to die. They would have been hacked to death by a young child who lacked the strength to do the job swiftly. And so the disposition of these two kings changes immediately. And as such, when the boy fails to act out of fear, these two kings respond with, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. If you read that in the Hebrew... The word yourself, atah, in the ancient Hebrew is a personal pronoun, but it it is also an emphatic, meaning, please, Gideon, please do it yourself, because in your strength, you will do it quickly. And so he does, thereby ending the long and disastrous reign of the Midianites over the Israelites. And what is so remarkable about this story is that throughout it, we find Gideon's circumstances conspiring against him almost to the point of making the pursuit of his calling an impossibility. From, from facing a vastly more equipped, more experienced, more confident enemy to the overwhelming odds of 135,000 against 300 to his own people refusing to support him and his army to the death of his own family. Circumstantially, Gideon had every reason in the world to quit. But listen, when God is for you and his people are with you, circumstances cannot stop you. The apostle Paul said, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Romans 12, 12 through 14. Okay, this is Paul's prescription. For a life spent following Jesus Christ and the call of Christ. And he writes it to every single believer who would ever answer that call because he knew that every single one of us were going to need it. Why? Because sometimes life is hard. Rejoice in hope. Sometimes it doesn't go the way we thought it would or wanted it to. Be patient in tribulation. Sometimes the enemy attacks us. Be constant in prayer. Sometimes people oppose us. Bless those who persecute you. You see, Paul wrote this prescription for every one of us because he knew we would need it because it is simply a fact of following Jesus Christ that sometimes our circumstances will conspire against us and our calling. And in those most difficult times... Far too many Christians give up far too easily. Author Anne Lamott once wrote, Hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. You see, we all have an idea of how we think our lives should be, and so we we go with that. We go with it as long as it seems to be working, and yet when it doesn't go the way we thought it would, we start to question whether or not we're on the right path, whether or not we should try something else, and then we begin to question our purpose and our plan and our calling in this life. And of course, everyone wants to know what God's plan for their life is. We all ask that question. But look, instead of asking What is God's plan for my life? What we really should be asking is what is God's plan for this world and how does my life fit into that plan? Okay, God's plan for his people didn't revolve around Gideon's life. It was the other way around. Gideon's life revolved around God's plan for his people which is exactly the same for us today. We were put here on this earth to serve God. It's not the other way around. His purpose for His people doesn't revolve around the success of your plan in life. No, the success of your plan in life actually revolves around His plan for His people, which is precisely why it is impossible to successfully fulfill the call of God on your life outside of the church, because God's plan for your life revolves around His plan for His people. And so if your personal circumstances seem to be conspiring against you that doesn't mean it's time to quit that just means it's time to look outside of yourself and your personal circumstances to see what God is trying to accomplish concerning this body of believers that you're a part of because it is often only then that you can truly understand what you're dealing with good or bad when you view those circumstances in the context of what God is doing with the rest of his people. God's plan for his people in Gideon's time was for them to return to him as their first love. In this moment, that was his plan for them. And yet he knew that if he'd allowed all 32,000 of them to fight against the Midianites, they would have claimed the glory for themselves. So he changed Gideon's personal circumstances to the point that it seemed hopeless. 300 men, inexperienced, ill-equipped, scared to death. His own people refused to help him. His own family murdered. Gideon's circumstances made continuing on with the plan seem like lunacy. But you see, God's plan didn't revolve around Gideon's circumstances. It was the other way around. And once Gideon and the 300 who were with him understood that there was no circumstance on earth that could stop them from doing what God had called them to do. Okay, the truth is, we are all called to the same calling in this life, every one of us. We're all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And of course, we do that in all sorts of different ways and so when we talk about God's plan for our lives what we're really talking about is how in particular God wants us to carry out his plan for this world so look i i don't know how God is calling you to make disciples necessarily. I don't know. I don't know what job you're called to. I don't know what city you're called to. I don't know what ministry you're called to. I don't don't know what people you're called to. I, I don't know what type of life you're called to. But there's one thing I know for certain. You are not called to quit. Even when the enemy attacks you and people oppose you and your circumstances seem to be working against you, do not ever quit on what God has called you to do. Look, there will be people, there will be people at times in your life who don't understand that. In fact, sometimes even some of your own people, your own family or friends, they won't understand it, but that's okay because you don't need everyone to be with you all of the time. You just need a few of God's people who are willing to die for you to be with you in the most critical time. Because when God is for you, and His people are with you. There is nothing in this world that can stop you. Let's pray.